Our guest today on Washed Up Journalists is Jennifer Savage, who was a senior vice president of international partnerships with Sports Illustrated at Time, Inc. Jennifer grew up in a log cabin in a small farming and dog sledding community outside Fairbanks, Alaska. During high school, in addition to jobs as a mobile gift shop clerk and a weed picker at a greenhouse, she worked as a librarian's assistant at the Fairbanks Daily News Miner, known as the Voice of Interior Alaska. She traveled to Australia after high school before returning to the U.S. to enter college. In 1992, she began working as a secretary at Little Brown & Company in the sales department. In 1994, she moved within Time, Inc. from LBNC to Sports Illustrated. And by 1997, she was heading up SI's international department, licensing the publication in international markets. That role evolved into a corporate job from where she launched dozens of international editions across the portfolio of Time, Inc.'s brands, including Time, Fortune, People, and In Style. Today, Savage lives in Valencia, Spain with her husband and her young daughter. Jennifer Savage, welcome to Washed Up Journalists. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So I I do want to note, um, I spent about 30 seconds pitching the idea to my colleagues of traveling to Spain to record this one in person. And that's 30 seconds was about all it took to realize we weren't going to do it that way. So, um, so we are doing this remotely. You uh, were hooking up kind of via the internet and um, I really appreciate your time. There's a lot of coordination with this one on both of our ends to figure out, okay, what's the time difference and what's a good time to record and finding a good recording environment. So I really appreciate all the efforts you've made to be with me today. No problem. That would have been awesome, but here we are. We'll have to make that part two. I'll, I'll maybe a year from now I can actually make the trip and we'll do it do an on site. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, well, let's start with your your formative years growing up in Alaska. I think that's a, a neat part of your background, and I was wondering if you could just describe what that was like and, and maybe what part of Alaska was most formative in your development as a young person. Sure. Um, I think like any child, wherever you grow up, however you grow up, seems normal at the time because it's all you know. And so it wasn't really until I left Alaska um, for the first time in my memory as a teenager and then as an adult when I really moved out of the state that I began to understand how it was a unique experience. Um, So we lived, my, my parents moved there um, permanently when I was about two years old and they moved first to Anchorage and we were living in a trailer, um, for I think about a year. And there was a little stray puppy that kept showing up outside. And at some point they decided to adopt him. And he was always a bit of a troublemaker. And one day he brought home a, a like real estate catalog in his mouth. It was one of many things that he dragged into our trailer. And this happened to be a catalog of land that was available under the Alaskan Homestead Act. This was, I think, roughly 1972. And under the Homestead Act, people could buy plots of land 
kind of in the middle of nowhere for a relatively cheap price if they would build a home on it within a certain amount of time. So this little mutt brought this real estate catalog home. My parents took a look at it and decided to buy 10 acres of land site unseen outside of Fairbanks. Um, and they packed me and my sister, Sarah, up into our um, trailer and pickup truck and drove to Fairbanks and drove out China Hot Springs Road 22 miles to where this plot of land was located. Back then, the pavement ended at 10 Mile, China Hot Springs Road. So it was dirt road from then on. And then it was another mile off of China Hot Springs Road to a little road known as No Name Lane. And they arrived at this piece of piece of earth in the middle of Alaska. And they set up um, a streamlined trailer and an army tent. I think they arrived in May. Uh, I was almost three years old. My sister was almost five years old. And we spent the summer living kind of between this big army tent and this streamlined trailer, while my parents, who had never built a home before, were building a cabin. And they managed to get the walls up and the roof up by September when it snowed. We then moved into the cabin. There was no electricity, no running water. We had an outhouse. Um, and that's where I spent my life until I was 18 years old. So obviously that's not a typical experience. It's, it's not unheard of, but it's not a typical experience. But for me as a child, it was wonderful because I grew up in the middle of a beautiful forest and could play outside in the summer, in the winter, the snow, the cold didn't bother me because I was a child. And in hindsight, I understand that this was not a typical experience. Um, and I slowly over time began to understand how that shaped me as a person. I think um, perhaps it has made me very comfortable with being by myself because there was other people there doing the same thing, but not a lot. And so I played with my sister. I played with a couple neighbor kids, but I really love just hanging out in the woods by myself. And I think now I have a daughter of my own and I often tell her like, learn to play by yourself. This is one of the most powerful things one can learn because if you're good by yourself, then you're going to be okay. Um, yeah, that, that's good advice. I think there's always kind of a, all of us need a little bit of time in isolation just for our own kind of sense of balance of our well being. But I think there are those of us that look forward to it more than others. And that's, um, I think that's really neat to be a person that's just kind of okay being alone. Um, I mean, I'm sure we all enjoy or crave even, you know, other people from time to time, but to just be fine in your own skin by yourself, it's probably indicative of someone with a great imagination. That's right. And, and, and that too, like we, because we didn't have electricity or, or phones or running water in the beginning, there was no television. And my parents chose, even when we did get electricity a, a few years later, they chose to never have a television. And so I grew up reading. And I think that definitely impacted my view of the world, um, the way I interact with the world. Um, I loved books. I loved reading. My 
my sister, two years older, was homeschooled for kindergarten. And I was sort of the shadow who sat there and wasn't really officially part of it, but listened in. And so I heard her learning the alphabet and learning the basics of reading, etc. And my father would read to us every night, and he would stop at the end of a chapter. And some of the books he read to us were, you know, the end of the chapter was a cliffhanger. And so between that and listening to my sister learning how to read, um, according to family legend, I started reading on my own at age four because I needed to know what the next chapter of the Hardy Boys novel was about. And from that moment on, I still enjoyed my father reading to us, but we would go to the library and I would bring, there must not have been a limit because I would bring home stacks and stacks of book and spend hours just, just plowing through them. And I think that's something also that even now in the digital age, I, if I had my choice, I would still sit and read for hours and hours and hours every day. And that also, I think, you know, I lived in a very isolated environment and I loved playing in the woods and I loved being by myself. And yet somehow by the time I was a young teen, I was already dreaming about seeing the rest of the world. And I think probably um, that came a little bit from my father, who was an adventurer himself, um, but also from all the things I read about in these books and I wanted to go see. So then you go to work um, as a librarian's assistant for the Fairbanks Daily News Miner. And I gather, I mean, you were a teenager at that time. Did you have any idea that you'd one day make a career in the journalism industry? Was it even on your radar? Not initially. I think it was, uh, it was my mom's friend was the librarian at the Fairbanks Daily News Miner and, and needed somebody. And that's how I found the job. But I do remember being absolutely fascinated by the reporters, the journalists, and by, by the newsroom, because the library was kind of a, a little office off by itself with a window overlooking the newsroom. And I would go there for a couple hours every day after school and do my work. But I just, I remember being so intrigued by the reporters and like the feel of the newsroom, the energy there. Um, I don't think even then that I ever dreamed of becoming a journalist. But I think going back to the fact that I loved reading, I loved stories. And I understood then that these were the people that, that put together the stories that I would read because I read the newspaper as well. And as in, as part of my role as the assistant to the librarian, I would help research the stories that they would write. And I loved that. I just wanted to be close to that world. And so I do think that that inspired me long-term, but I, I, for some reason, I think maybe I just always knew that I was not gifted as a writer, but I loved reading the stories. And that's what I really wanted to be close to one way or another. Would, would you say that your um, penchant for enjoying or finding comfort in isolation made you a naturally gifted researcher because you could just absorb yourself in whatever it is you were researching uh, as opposed to needing to be social. Did that play an impact at all? I think so. I, I was honestly painfully shy as a child as well. And so I think that that was a way that I could be close to what I was so intrigued by, but I never wanted to be the center of attention. And so I felt like doing research was so interesting to me because that's such an essential part I came to understand of creating a story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, 
you need to understand the background to write well and convincingly. And that, that was, that was something that I loved. Here in a second, I'm going to kick it forward to, to how you got into the business uh, in adulthood and your start in publishing. But I do want to ask, do you make it back to, uh, to Alaska um, anymore these days? And if so, how often? Not as often as I'd like. Um, my parents um, both grew up in Michigan and they went there on their honeymoon and fell in love and, you know, went back to the lower 48, as Alaskans call the rest of the U.S., minus Hawaii, um, and then returned to Alaska a few years later. But my father's brother followed him to Alaska or or went to Alaska as well. But the rest of the family um, remained in Michigan and the Midwest. So my parents um, eventually left um, after I graduated from high school and so I don't have family there anymore other than the one uncle who's fantastic, but, um, and a lot of my friends left as well. Uh, it's also strangely a very expensive trip. You can fly to Europe much cheaper than you can fly to Alaska and much quicker. Um, so I don't get back as often as I'd like, but I have been back a handful of times. I took my husband there, um, for the first time I took him in March to Nome, Alaska for the finish of the Iditarod. I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, but I felt like what a fantastic way to introduce my husband to Alaska than going in the dead of winter when it's incredibly cold and dark. And um, for the finish of this this historic um, dog sled race, um, which is a celebration of a sort of interesting and important moment in Alaskan history. Um, and it was great. I mean, we were there, we saw the Northern Lights and my, my daughter arrived nine months later. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) I think I know where you're going with that. Yeah. (laughs) Those things tend to happen. Um, Well, let's talk about how it was you came to get involved in publishing at Little Brown and Company and and how that um, eventually grew into a position at Sports Illustrated. Kind of talk me through that evolution. Sure. Um, So I was living in Westchester County, which is outside of New York, and was completely obsessed with the idea of finding a way into the city, as it's called, and was constantly looking for jobs. And I didn't have a huge amount of experience, so I was looking for entry-level jobs. And I found one available as a secretary at Little Brown & Company, um, supporting the national sales director. So this was um, a man who sold all of Little Brown and Company's books to uh, Barnes and Noble and Walden Books and Borders, which back then were like the big three, because this was before the digital revolution of book publishing. And I managed to get the job and I I loved it. It was, um, I I knew that I didn't have the experience to work on the editorial side, but I still just loved the idea of being involved in the publishing of books, which even then was something that was so important to me. And I worked there for almost two years and realized that my, my boss, um, was, I think in his early 50s and kind of a rock star at the company, he wasn't going anywhere for probably 15 years and there was no real place for me to evolve. But Little Brown and Company was part of 
Time Inc., which had not too long prior been acquired by Time Warner. So it had this entire massive media company around it and was really great about promoting from within. And so with my boss's knowledge, I started looking for other jobs um, within the building and and found an opening at Sports Illustrated that was more or less the same level that I was at at Little Brown and Company. Um, and so my my mindset was really like, where can I go where I can continue to advance but still be in this world that I love so much? Um, so I was hired as, uh, again, a secretary in the sales development team, which is back then was their word for marketing. Um, and I worked there from 1994 to, I think, early 1996. And within those two years, I had the opportunity to work on a side project within Time uh, Sports Illustrated, which was um, working on the Atlanta Olympics. So Sports Illustrated and Time Inc. were world sponsors of the Olympics at that time. And as part of the package of benefits of being a sponsor, you could bring your clients as guests to attend the games. So I was working on the ticket management for the Atlanta Olympics, which meant assigning tickets to each of the, I believe, 3,000 plus guests of Sports Illustrated that went to the games. And it was a side project. I had to do my my day job at the same time. Um, it was a great experience for me. I got to go to Atlanta and I, I worked probably 20 hours a day, but managed to sneak away sometimes to go to events. And evidently I did a fairly good job because shortly thereafter, the man that I'd worked with on that side project was asked by the general manager of Sports Illustrated to create an international department. Um, and so um, I was asked to join the fledgling team. It was really me and my boss creating this Sports Illustrated international team out of nothing um, with, with not a lot of direction of even what that meant. But I had always been fascinated by the world and traveling. And so I heard the word international and said, yes, yeah, sign me up. And it, this may come even as a surprise to many of our, our listeners, but there was a time um, in publications such as Sports Illustrated where international editions ceased to exist like they, like they did or have in the last, say, 20 years. Can you explain to me what the publication's goals were and kind of what their thought process was in terms of branching out and offering their content to other places around the world? It's an interesting question because at that time, 1996, it was really a a concept that just one or two people at Sports Illustrated um, was interested in. Um, and if you're talking about magazine publishing, there's to, to oversimplify. There's there's two approaches to international development. One is more or less strategic, that you want to take what your brand represents in the United States or whatever home market and spread it around the world because you feel like the brand represents something that's going to be interesting in, in other countries. The other mindset is, is just money. Can you make money doing this? And at that time, I think 
you know, Time Inc. Sports Illustrated was part of Time Inc. Um, and and it's a public company, so there wasn't anything that would be approved by the the corporate team if it didn't make money. But I think the original concept was this is a huge brand and sports is an international topic. Surely there is a an appetite for what Sports Illustrated has done so well in the United States for so long in other countries. And hopefully the money will come. But this was also a time when magazine publishing and, and especially Time Inc. Um, with all of the brands that they represented um, was just doing phenomenally well in the U.S. They were making a huge amount of money, um, relatively speaking, in the magazine world. And so they, they, you know, it was approved that this little international team was created and could go experiment. But there wasn't, I don't want to say that there wasn't respect for it, but it was, it was sort of like, okay, sure, go, go see what you can do. Um, and I, I think the idea was let's, let's spread the brand where we can and see how much money we can make. Um, but it took years for that to grow into something that was corporately recognized as um, important to the bottom line of the company. And, and remind me, where did you go? Where was your first, uh, like when you decided to, to when, when the SI decided to start this, these international editions, where was your first post? Where did they ship you off to? I, I was in New York for the first couple years as, again, like a, a secretary coordinator. Um, then my boss, who was the only other member of the team, um, left the company for his own reasons and because I was the only person left who had any idea what we'd been working on, they kind of, luckily for me, this was like a huge catapult for my career. We're like, well, why don't you take over? And I said, sure, because I was in my early 20s and you're at that age, just ballsy enough to think you can do whatever somebody asks you to do. Um, and so at that time, most of our business was focused on the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue because this was content that really could go anywhere in the world. So we had somewhere between 15 and 20 international editions of the SI swimsuit issue. At the same time, throughout Time Inc., there was a slowly growing interest in um, international development. And so in 1999-2000, the company started looking at creating a corporate international team rather than having individual magazines such as Sports Illustrated having their own staff doing it. So in 2000, um, I was actually at the Sydney Olympics once again doing the Sports Illustrated project. Um, and I was asked if I would be willing to leave Sports Illustrated, move into the Time Inc. International Development Team and relocate to London um, to focus on, I was, I was, given the option of um, working as a director of the EMEA, Europe, Middle East, Africa, um, development for Time Inc. International. So I eagerly accepted and was moved to London um, and spent a couple years, years there, like introducing Time Inc. to the world and getting to know the world of publishing outside of the U.S. Um, and what a fantastic time that was. For me, I want to touch on one more thing regarding Sports Illustrated, and I have to ask: being being a woman, 
um, was Sports Illustrated at that time, uh, would you consider it a male-dominated environment? Did, were there any barriers to entry in terms of you being a woman? It sounded like uh, they were eager to, to throw you into the fire, so to speak, but did you have any barriers to entry as a woman in that business? I I did not. I um, And I think there's probably a huge element of luck in that. Um, perhaps at times I was so naive that I didn't even recognize a barrier if I saw it, which could have worked to my benefit. Um, it, yes, it was a male-dominated environment just statistically. I think particularly Sports Illustrated because I don't think it's incorrect or offensive to say like, you know, the majority of sports fanatics are men. Um, and so there was a lot of men there. There was always somebody like putting down the hallway or tossing a football down the hallway. And to me, that was fine. I, um, but I, I never, I never knowingly experienced any kind of barrier as a woman. Um, I think I, I do have some memories actually of traveling for Sports Illustrated to other countries and sometimes being treated a little bit, being dismissed a little bit because I was fairly young and female. Um, and so in, in some markets, I think that was, that was more shocking to them than it was in the U.S. Um, but the fact was, I was their contact. So if they were interested in doing business with Sports Illustrated, it was either me or nobody. And it, that didn't seem to hold them back. So again, it, it may have been just luck. I had wonderful bosses. Um, it may have been that I was just a little naive. And if, if there's a barrier and you just don't acknowledge it, sometimes the barrier crumbles, sometimes not. I think a lot of it was just luck for me. And describe for me kind of your day-to-day um, lifestyle, what that was like. How much time were you spending like negotiating contracts? How much travel was involved? Were you on the phone all the time? Just kind of paint a picture for me of, of what a typical day was like, if there was such a thing as typical. Yes. I, in, the, in the early years, which would be probably the first three to five years um, working in international there was a, a huge amount of travel um, because Time Inc. was actually quite late to the game in terms of uh, magazine publishers expanding overseas. Uh, Condé Nast, Hearst, National Geographic, um, Rodale, they were all a few years to a decade ahead of us. And so part of a big part of my job in the beginning was to fly around the world and knock on doors and say, hey, this is Sports Illustrated, this is Time Inc., we're open for business. And also to get to know who the international publishers were and to begin to assess who would be the right fit as a partner for Time Inc. So in the beginning, and particularly when they moved me to London, I spent, I traveled, if not every week, um, every other week, um, sometimes short trips, sometimes long trips, and just spent a lot of time talking to people face to face. I think, um, a lot of markets, Europe, maybe not so much, but South America, Asia, if they don't see you face to face, nothing's going to happen. So I really had to go. And even in Europe, you really had to go and introduce yourself and start to create a relationship with these publishers before you could understand 
who would be the good partners and have any chance of them being willing to work with you. Um, as time went on, people began to know who we were and what we had to offer and how we worked. And then um, it became more focused on deal negotiation, I suppose. But even that, a lot of the potential for success for negotiating a good deal was based on relationships. So I would be continuously going back to markets and spending time with the people that we had identified could be good partners for us. Um, a lot of email, of course. Um, it's easy with time differences, etc. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of time on the road, which again I loved. What was a a greater challenge in that business? Trying to introduce existing content that your publications already had to to new international markets or trying to identify international markets um, that were a good fit uh, strategically and then finding content that fit their audience you know do, mm-hmm. was there a give and take there with with how you approached um, what content would make a publication in a new market how did you make those decisions well I spent most of the time I was at Time Inc. working for the Time Inc. corporate group. And that meant that I was representing a multitude of brands. And so the strategy was a little bit different brand by brand for a couple reasons. Um, The most obvious was which brands are most interesting outside of the U.S. Um, And the answer to that was Fortune and InStyle were probably the most obvious fits. Um, because starting with Fortune, it's a business magazine, and it writes articles about um, any brand across the world. So there's probably a slight emphasis on U.S. brands, but it it covers business worldwide, and even the U.S. brands that it covers are ones that are known throughout the world. And so as a brand and in terms of the content, this is a magazine that makes a lot of sense in other markets. InStyle is about fashion. Beauty and style, again, are themes that that cross borders very easily. Um, People magazine is a celebrity magazine. It's primarily focused on Hollywood, but Hollywood is big enough that that's also interesting outside of the U.S. So we also, as an international corporate team, worked very closely with the editors and publishers at each of these brands. We were also impacted by their willingness to let their brand be launched overseas. Some of them were very, very cautious, and um, we had to take that into account. So there's not one answer that was uniformly appropriate across those brands, Um, InStyle was pretty strategic about this is where these are the biggest markets in terms of beauty and fashion consumption. So let's start with those. Fortune was a little bit more like, well, tell us, what, where could you find a good partnership? Um, and within the markets that we targeted, we also spent a lot of time talking to the local publishers saying, like, what's appealing to you? They had to be able to make a good business out of any international edition that they launched. And so there has to be a big enough reader base that care about the fortune brand and the content that we could offer. And there also has to be enough advertisers willing to buy into a local edition. 
And so there was never one cookie cutter answer to the question that you asked. We just kind of figured it out as we went. And as I said, like we just traveled and traveled and traveled and talked to people. And when there was an opportunity and a partner that seemed like a solid fit that could represent um, Time Inc.'s own values in terms of editorial quality and professional integrity, we'd go for it. Okay, time for a momentary interlude so I can tell you that today's episode of the Washed Up Journalist podcast is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Since 2006, Legacy has worked with successful people around the country to capture their favorite stories for posterity. Legacy does it all, from interviewing and research to writing, editing, and designing your book. It's the best way to publish your story, and their services are available to you now. Legacy Preservation. We write history yours. Special thanks to Jennifer Savage for joining me today all the way from Spain. Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the wonderful intro and outro music that we use in each episode. Now back to my conversation with Jennifer Savage. Was there ever a moment um, during your time with Time Inc. where um, there was a telltale sign that print news was changing and the, or the way people consume news was changing with the advent of the internet. Um, do you recall any moment where, where all of a sudden it became clear that, wow, we're, we're in a brand new world? I think from day one at Sports Illustrated, you know, Little Brown and Company being a book publisher, they have one stream of revenue and that is from the readers who buys the book. There's no advertising in the books. As soon as I went to Sports Illustrated in 1994, I began to learn about the reality of the digital evolution and its impact on publishing. And from 1994 until I left at the end of 2017, it was, it was always a big theme in the conversation, and it was never conquered. There was never an answer that seemed to really be that silver bullet that suddenly made sense of the, the transition from print to digital. Um, and I think that's, I think that's still true today. I've been out of it now for just over a year, but absolutely. In 1994, people were talking about websites and how do you monetize? And when I left in 2017, like, of course there was, different nuances to that conversation and a little bit more of a sophisticated understanding. But in fact, it, it still hasn't been figured out. I'd agree with you a hundred percent. And if you, you know, if you step back and look at the the whole industry from 30,000 feet, you can kind of see, uh, I mean, there are different publications experimenting all the time and there, I don't think there is an industry standard or a best practice. Um, there are maybe some trends, and maybe in the last couple of years, we're starting to see a little uniformity in trends with the way uh, not only people consume news, but the way they pay for how they get it and where they get it. But but I think it's still a mystery. And I think that's kind of maybe one of the more interesting issues of our time in journalism is what's the new model? Is there a model? Uh, or is everybody just kind of winging it on the fly? And I think that's kind of where we're at now. I wholeheartedly agree. And even as a on the flip side of it, as a as a, an individual, as a consumer, when I think about the way that I seek out information and stories, um, I I don't even understand entirely what drives me. I mean, a lot of it's just what there's so much of it that it's overwhelming. 
Um, and I, I'm very thirsty for information and news, but half the time I have information being pushed to me and I read it, but I don't even know what to believe. Um, so I, I, I wish I knew the answer. Anyone who knows the answer would be a very rich person, um, but it's not me. <laughs> yeah, it's not me either. I know that much. Um, you, you alluded to some wonderful bosses you had during your, your time at Time, Inc. Um, were there any particular folks in the business who mentored you um, that kind of really impacted your outlook on the business and in, in terms of, you know, thinking down the road of a career, anybody worth mentioning that really stood out in terms of uh, giving you some sage advice that was irreplaceable? Well, no, but that's not the whole answer. I I can honestly say that every boss that I had um, during my Time Inc. career was wonderful. I had I had roughly six to eight different bosses, and they all taught me something. Most of it was teaching me in the positive sense. In some cases, I learned what not to do, but but I have to say. Everybody that I worked for at Time Inc. was really wonderful to me and really smart. It, it, Time Inc. as a company hires really great people, um, and I learned a lot from every one of them. I would also say that I learned a lot from my colleagues, and particularly in the last few years that I spent, I learned a lot from the people that were on my team. Um, let's face it, millennials, it, that's, that's like, you know, they, they are redefining the way people communicate and people interact with their world. And I think I learned more from them in the last couple of years than anybody else. Um, in terms of mentors, this sounds like a horribly cheesy cliche, but I would say my parents actually were inadvertently uh, mentors for me, even in my career, um, because I learned very early on from them, what work ethic was. It was just expected always that any responsibility that was handed to me, I would accept and fulfill, um, and and fulfill with honesty. So, I, I again, I know it sounds like a very cheesy cliche, but to me, I think that I I didn't graduate from college, and as you asked before, I never really felt like there were barriers for me in my career. I, I, I just got to follow what was interesting to me. And somehow I kept moving up and moving on and ending up with jobs that I loved. And it, it, it might be luck, but I also think a lot of it was I worked my ass off. And I was always very, very honest with my bosses, with my colleagues, with my clients. And I think Ultimately, those two things, working hard and being honest, mattered more than anything else. I think, too, it's probably no accident that the daughter of parents who would homestead in Alaska and you know start life in a tent while they were building a log cabin, it's no accident they would raise a daughter who would jump at the opportunity to go manage a department as a 20-something, an international department. Um, it seemed like maybe your adventurous personality, I'm guessing you inherited that from them and weren't afraid to take a risk, and, and, and certainly it panned out for you. Absolutely. I mean, that's I learned as I went, and that is one of the best ways to learn. Um, 
And I think that I've always been able to just accept jobs and opportunities that are appealing to me and like feed my sense of adventure. Um, I never had like a career path in mind that I was like, I need to do this and I need to do this. It was just like, well, what can I do next that it sounds fun and cool? And, and I consequently spent 25 years being really, really happy. What would be your one or two pieces of advice to a young person who um, is aspiring to work in journalism and maybe they're not sure if they want to work on the business end or the editorial side, you know, what would, how would you advise them to kind of weigh, weigh their passion and, and find themselves in this industry? Hmm. Um, I think just go with what is appealing to you. Have a very, very open mind Every person that you meet is an opportunity to learn, um, whether positively or negatively. Um, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard for me because this generation, the generation that's starting into the workforce now, is so different. And of course, everybody says that, but I really believe now that things have changed so drastically in the last 10, 15 years, that I'm not even sure how it works anymore. If I had to go back into the workplace now, I wouldn't know where to begin. But I know what worked for me. And that was just like, follow my heart. I, I honestly never took a job that wasn't exciting to me. And even though that might not have been the most aggressive career path, I actually look back on it and it worked extremely well. And I think that's just because it was honest and, and I, I, I followed what I wanted to do. If you're not interested in a job, why take it? Even if it's short term, like honestly, why take it? Go for what you love. You know, honesty has kind of been a theme of our conversation today, and it, it's what better really what better theme for someone in journalism than honesty? Because at the end of the day, journalism is about getting to the truth, and whether it's being honest with the public that you serve as a publication or being honest with yourself about where your heart lies, I mean, that's what a great way to live. Be guided by what, what's the truth of my situation. That's right, and I I think that's easier said than done. And any industry and perhaps even more so in journalism today, because, um, it's, this is a, this is a rough, a rough time for the media, I think. And I feel for journalists who really are passionate about investigating and telling the truth and, um, sharing what they learn. And, um, I, I sympathize, but I think it's a tough time for them, but if they can do it, um, you know, what better way to live? Uh, last question for me, Jennifer, I got to ask you, what is the coolest part about living in Spain? How long have you been there? And, um, what have you enjoyed most? Ah, oh, well, I love this question. There's so many things. Um, we just arrived in August. Um, and it's not just Spain. I, I think Spain is a country that might be a little bit underappreciated right now. But the vibe here is I'm in Valencia, which is the third largest city in Spain. And 
It's a little bit under the radar. Madrid and Barcelona are obvious. People know them. People love them. I've been to both. I love both cities. Don't get me wrong. But Valencia has a lot of what both of those cities offer, but it's just a little bit quieter. The people are chill. It's very, very safe. Um, the wine is cheap. The food is good. There's a siesta. The siesta is a real thing. I mean, for an American, that is a concept that is, you know, in, in America, people sort of brag about how little sleep they get. And here, I sleep eight hours a night, and then I often sleep for one or two hours in the middle of the day. Um, what's not to love about that? And I think the last thing for me is the street art. Uh, if you ever come to Valencia, just wander around the old city and you can spend hours looking at it. And it's not, it's graffiti, but it's really street art. It's absolutely beautiful. Highly recommend it. That's a pretty good endorsement for Spain right there. I appreciate that. And I think I'm going to have to follow your advice and take a mandatory siesta this afternoon because I think that's um, maybe the best way to celebrate a podcast with somebody living in Spain is to do as they do in Spain. So I, you might find me on the couch this afternoon for about an hour. It's going to change your life. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for your time and for making you know the effort to, um, again, to coordinate with me and to do this internationally, which again, that's fitting for someone that worked in uh, international editions. But I really appreciate it. And I think you've offered our listeners a really unique perspective today. And again, just appreciate it, appreciative of your time and, and of your candor. Thank you so much. Thank you. 